That's him. Oh. Oh. <laughs> yeah. See, he's like, ah, oh, let me go. Hi everyone, my name is Divarmas Luther and this is our third video. Today we have James Shepard Jr. He's an instructor at Guardian Martial Arts Studio and he's also a photographer in Creative Flow Photography. Say hi James. Hello everyone. Today we're gonna interview him on two things. He does martial art and another form of art. So he does two forms of arts, different style. Do you want to introduce yourself, James? Go ahead. Yeah, my name is James Shepard Jr. I uh, get a huge honor for me to be here and be able to do this. Two businesses that I run are Guardian Martial Arts Studio, which is a martial arts school that teaches uh, Taekwondo, Hapkido, and then SIRE slash Wharton Defense System. So, we have uh, two Korean arts and then uh, kind of the Filipino arts there. We're based in uh, the basement of the Valley Mission Church. We're on the, the lower level of that. And so, you know, when our business was first started, I, I'm actually the second owner. The original owner was uh, Gary Johnson. He's a former county sheriff, uh, retired, who actually started it as something he felt was his calling to provide a, a positive, like Christian atmosphere for kids and be able to be a positive influence, you know, kind of role model wise and you'll know, still be able to teach quality martial arts. You know, I linked up with him back in uh, 2015 when he actually came to judge my uh, Hapkido uh, first on black belt test. Uh, I actually started teaching there in 2016, just kind of showed up on a whim one day to check out, you know, the school that he was running. One thing led to another, started teaching there in 2016. And then I took over the Hapkido program in, I think, 2017 or 2018 was when I became the senior instructor of that. 2017 was also when I started teaching the Filipino arts there. 2019 was when I took over the business. So Master Gary Johnson retired, um, you know, decided it was a good time for him to retire from running the business and passed the business on to me and we've still been going strong. You know, we have you know, lots of students that we're very proud of and that we provide. I think we have a great atmosphere and you know, lots of uh, good quality instructors. And then on the other end, I also run uh, Creative Flow Photography. Uh, that's my own personal photography business. Uh, I uh, do uh, individual, uh, family, couple shoots, engagement. Uh, my day job is counselor. I actually work as a behavior clinician for uh, Milestone, which is the clinical arm of Stone Belt. So I, I do uh, therapeutic work with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So all, all the things that I, I'm involved with are just kind of involved around how, how can I be you know, a good helper with you know, other, other individuals. Which is very important right now because a lot of people need that mental health to be nurtured. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think that's something that society as a whole is getting uh, more informed about just all the needs of mental health and just how how that looks. And I think especially in the disability community, that's huge as far as getting a better understanding of just what life uh, is like and just how um, people are affected, you know, just disability-wise. I know with the, the quarantine and everything with, you know, COVID really hit that community hard because, you know, that's changes in jobs, uh, job availability for some people. That's ability to go outside. If somebody who's like, you know, maybe in one of our supported living homes, you know, maybe can't go out to businesses or can't go and do some of the activities they used to do. And I primarily work pediatric. And so you have a lot of kids who are missing, you know, seeing friends or adjusting with all the developments with schools. And so right now definitely is a big time to take care of, you know, your mental health and be able to really kind of cut into church where you're, but just kind of be filled up, kind of recharge in a way. Yeah, I agree because I, 
used to train jiu-jitsu. Right now, that's not really possible. And uh, does that affect your studio as well? Yeah, it has affected us as far as just how we run. Uh, what we've we've been doing is, you know, we've been making it where we have we have a couple of families. You know, all of them actually are students at the school, and you know, a couple are you know, two of the kids and one of the the father are black belts or instructors. We'll have you know individual families maybe work together for partner work. When the lockdown first started, you know, I actually was able to you know fortunately you know was in a position where I could purchase more kind of freestanding bags or heavy bags and just kind of it really forced us to get creative with how we do things because we didn't want to have any extra you know contact you know we while we knew we knew people were going to be working out and sweating and maybe breathing harder around each other so you know how how can we establish class in a way where we could be you know socially distanced and just also you know kind of pairing people together if they're related and you're kind of living in the same house you know make sure where they can work together and uh kind of have you know give each person their own spot in the room we have a little over 800 square feet in the Comfortably, you know, I, I did. I actually went and <laughs> crunched the numbers and did the math. And we can we can have about you know eight to ten people you know in, in a class and be be distance okay if we you know, really use the full space. Yeah, like socially distancing class basically. Yeah, yeah, just kind of yes, yeah, just kind of making sure it's distance and you know we wipe down the bags in between classes and you know kind of you know deep clean between classes because there's about you know fifteen to twenty minutes between each class. You know we'll do you know two to three classes you know depending on the night of the week. And so, you know, wiping down the equipment and, you know, just kind of making sure people who are in the gallery or you know, wearing masks or, you know, parents waiting for their kid, they can they can decide to wait inside and watch. Or, you know, some some will just hang out in their cars because they're like, I yeah. want to increase the risk of exposure. So, you know, we've had people who, you know, luckily people have been very cooperative and very, uh, you know, understanding of just some of the precautions that were, are taking place. And then we have some students that we, you know, dearly miss who uh, are still staying home because they're, they're either have a loved one or a close family member they don't want to jeopardize getting infected and so we have some that we haven't had come back yet you know it's you know it's been kind of heartbreaking just not seeing people because you know on one end we have you know the people that we are seeing but on the other side you know you're thinking about the people who aren't there too and just how to help them out um when we did the lockdown uh three nights a week over uh, facebook live um doing video classes when yeah. we were able to do any in-person in-person classes and then would occasionally do like some zoom seminars and that was actually a very, very interesting moment because it was one where we kind of figure out how can we still provide not only the, the training and the, the ability to learn, but also how can we maintain the, that personal connection because, you know, it's not only the, the training, but it's also you know, the camaraderie that you get from working with people. There's, you know, people there that are, you know, friends and, you know, people that, you know, we consider, you know, close like family. So that was, that was a very uh, kind of big moment trying to help with that. And then, again, being able to provide the, the training, but also, you know, making sure we're taking precautions we can because you're not in person to guide them you have to do it through the video is that difficult for you to do i will say that when you're when you're teaching by video i mean anything anything done solo and done on video in an instructional capacity I mean, you're bringing two to three times the energy of your audience uh yeah. no what just because you you are you are providing the you know, you're the show in that, that point. And so, you know, there's, there's, there's planning and, you know, kind of thought that goes into it. You know, there's reacting to people making comments on, you know, the live chat, you know, if there's something they have questions over. And so being able to make sure you're able to meet all those needs. Also, considering, you know, where are people at when they're doing this? You know, they're not in a training space. They might be in their living room. They might be in a basement. They might be outside. When you're used to going to several classes a week and then all of a sudden you're going to none, I mean, that's, that's hours a week that you're, you're not moving. Yeah. And so, you know, doing some things to help them, you know, stay moving, you know, keep up a certain level of flexibility. 
and then also reviewing technical things technique-wise and uh, form-wise to make sure that those things stay fresh in the mind. So, you know, I have a student who we've met over Zoom, and it's a two-hour class. And so thinking about how to do distance training with what he has available in his garage is, is big. Reaching out to, to people who are not maybe able to come in and, you know, making sure they have things to keep themselves busy. And everybody you know, working through this right now is trying to grow in. And uh, that's something, you know, I definitely see kind of coming up for the future. Yeah, so you want to make sure it's like fair for everyone that can't be in person, that can be in person. Like you just want to make sure everyone gets all the benefits they can get. Yeah, because luckily, um, with with the nice thing about doing it over Facebook Live is all those classes were recorded and are accessible on the site, so people can go back and look at those classes if they want to. You don't want people to forget the moves or the techniques and all those things. Um, but what do you think of like, let's say, taking a break? for a while and then returning to practicing and all those stuff. Is that important also for mental health because we were talking about mental health as well? Will that help them kind of sharpen it just because they take a break and then they will return to it? Is there a difference in their techniques or something like that? Once you make those neural connections to, to learn and internalize something, it's not so much that you forget things, but the strength of those neural networks is based on how, how much is that network activated and repeated. And so yeah. there's something to be said for repetition, either rep high level of repetition to increase the strength of that neural network to, to kind of recall those moves, or also a strong emotional uh, connection to it that will also help recall. But you know, it's one where you know, sort of like riding a bike. You don't really forget how to ride a bike. You might not be as good as if you say you were practicing it every day, and then maybe you don't ride one for years, and it's like, okay, I got to remember a little bit how to balance, but once you get going, you're like, okay, I've got it. Yeah, kind of like also like driving a car, basically. Yeah, like driving a car. So I say it's, it's the same way where when it comes to like maybe forums or something like that, um, you might remember generally what it looks like, but there might be little specifics and little minor details that might be tougher to recall, but just with practice and guidance, it comes back. I really miss doing jujitsu. I really want to do it again. And I know the school that I went to, they're open. I also don't feel safe yet to go to class. There are some people that, you know, they don't care and they would just go. But I also have that guilt of not practicing and training. Yeah, so I feel like, oh, I'm missing out. Sometimes I would just like watch videos of the techniques that I used to learn. My husband also trains. He's a blue belt. I'm still a white belt. So that kind of affects it. It's, it's, it's a really tough spot to be in because you know, I, I don't want anyone who's not there to feel guilty about not being there. Yeah. Everybody has their reasons where they feel comfortable enough to do it or they feel uncomfortable. And you know, I want to be res respectful and honor that because I mean, everybody's in different spots. For people who are going, you're great, you know, you're doing that. But I'm also, um, what, I'm, what I've told students and, you know, parents coming back is, you know, for those of you who are coming in person, we're putting a, a very strong amount of trust in you that you're, you know, maintaining, you know, social distance and, you know, wearing masks and doing things, you know, according to, you know, just what the different guidelines are. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that is a lot of trust to put in someone else. Yeah, of course. Okay, so we're going to steer away from the martial arts and to your <laughs> photography. From what I see and also from what you've been saying, I can tell that you really care about other people's mental health and also like you want to make sure people are happy. You want to see their genuine expression when you take photos of them. Where did that come from? How does 
martial art and photography connect in that? Because I'm very curious on how people choose their fields, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, so I want to know, like, what makes you choose that? You know, part of it is in the title of uh, the business. I call it Creative Flow. And you know, part of that is for, for, for two reasons. One is, you know, there's a certain level of creativity that you have in, in being able to do anything, you know, art form-wise. There might be a maple leaf outside that I've seen 10,000 times, but somebody takes a photograph of it in a way that's stunning that all of a sudden takes something that's normal and ordinary and makes it look, you know, extraordinary. And so, you know, there's a certain level of creativity in being able to uh, pull that out of just regular everyday things. And you know, also with the, you know, not to go too back into martial arts, but, you know, uh, one, of the, one of the organizations I'm in, uh, Natural Spirit International, is we have in our, our creed, we say we're uh, warriors of martial arts and scholars of physical movement. Together we see perfection. And it's one where there's a certain amount of kind of studying and kind of being scholarly about something where you're, you have just this, this drive to be able to take a deeper look and see past just the surface things. And so that's where, you know, for martial arts, you know, if you're a traditional art, you've got, you know, forms or other things and lots of movements that people might say, oh, that doesn't look functional or practical. Well, you know, depending on the lens you're looking at that through, you know, it can be just what you see on face value or there can be a lot deeper meaning or there could be some translation into something that is more uh, palpable for you. And so, you know, there you're, you're taking something that might have a square look in one way, but then you're able to, change it and reshape it to something that's, you know, your own later. And so that's where that kind of natural part comes out. You know, I, I say photography can sometimes be a very high stakes uh, endeavor because, you know, you don't get those moments back. Those are small fractions of seconds that you're getting timing to get that, that image just right. And, you know, it's not so much the gear or the, that you're using, but it's, it's the technique and the know-how to know how to, how to compose, how to frame, how to see light in a way in which it's going to take the message or the emotion that you want to convey, cognition theorist named Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi, who's uh, the author of Flow Theory, the state between high performance, anxiety, and kind of drive in critical moments that allows you to kind of rise to the occasion in a high performing manner. It's one where, you know, this could be either a make it or break it moment, or this can be a success or failure moment. You know, you don't get, you know, those moments back or, you know, you, you can try to replay something, but you might not get that exact same look for that moment. But whenever I'm doing like sports, uh, sports or wildlife, I mean, not, not every sport moment is planned. Not every, you know, definitely with wildlife, like you can't plan when that bird or when that bug or when that uh, animal is going to move just right. a certain way or look a certain yeah. way. You've got to have a little bit of forethought and a lot of, uh, you know, it's our skill and timing to get, get just the right stuff going. And so there's this kind of flow and, being able to read the situation and move with it in a way that you're going to get the most uh, stunning kind of end result. There's some, some power in this image or there's some, some drama or depth to, to what I'm seeing here. And that, that's, that's where I think that, that kind of comes out. You choose to do more candid kind of photography for like sports and wildlife. And then for, you know, for family portraits, obviously there's a setting and everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, for sports and wildlife, it's just being in the right spot at the right moment. And a lot of that really comes down to just, A, knowing the sport or knowing you know, the martial art, knowing kind of how people move. And so you kind of can predict, you know, where something's going to land or how someone's going to move in a way where you can frame and compose and you're trying to document a moment in time. 
And for families, you know, it's one where you, know, you get them going, where they're talking to each other or playing or you're kind of having a, a, a snuggling, like kind of candid moment. You'll cue them in a way where they're going to have a really natural interaction. And this brief moment where you can just really see them enjoying each other and, and just having that time together. And that's where you, you make it happen. Like when you take photos of family, you prefer natural interactions. You don't <laughs> want to tell them what to do, tell them how to pose. Well, there's an interesting thing in, in posing and there's kind of theory behind posing of what's different between a portrait and a uh, candid. And there's a, a guy named uh, Robert, uh, I think his name is Vinaleva. I'm sorry if I'm butchering it, who the actual person is. I think it's Robert Vinaleva, but I, I could be completely wrong on his last name. There. <laughs> I'm trying to remember, but it, it escapes me at the moment. But uh, he has this thing where he calls, talks about three, three points of, of posing that differentiate between it being a a portrait and a candid, and also who is it about? So they say, look for three things, the eyes, the nose, and the chest. Where are those pointing? If I'm looking directly towards you, and all three points are towards the camera, that's more of a portrait. That's more of a, they're, they're aware of it, and they're, they're, there's interaction with the, the photographer, there's interaction with the camera, and you know, there's a different level of awareness there. When I turn and all of a sudden take my attention from where the camera is, now all of a sudden it looks like it's capturing more of a moment in time two points going here, but I, I look at my eyes, my eyes are going there, but two points are there. And all of a sudden I'm aware of the camera, but with where I'm looking at, if my eyes are here, it's in between a camera and a portrait, but I'm, I'm still engaging with that. But if there were a second person here and they're looking at the camera and I'm, and I'm looking at them, then all of a sudden it becomes more about them. So you, how you uh, manage those points and how you uh, get people to interact with each other. Um, again, if they're, they're all their interaction is toward each other, then you're finding more a more intimate moment as where if there's interaction between the two and you know I'll do this with couples where I'll say okay you know you know lean in you know kind of maybe kind of square up to each other where you're holding hands you're close maybe your foreheads are touching and uh, I want you to hug them like you haven't seen them in five years and all of a sudden I'll tell the the you know one of the people in the, the photograph say okay now look at them and then I'll say okay now look towards just, you know, just with your eyes, look towards the camera or just very gently look towards the camera. And that's almost like you're, you're kind of in there in just a little bit of that moment. Within there, you're getting all these little micro pose variations where you have the full candid moment, but then you have one where maybe they're both looking at you, but they're kind of facing towards each other. So you can see the moment is about them versus if, uh, if the attention is taken away or is taken off camera, all of a sudden there, there might be something more interesting further out that, you know, they're, they're looking out, but also that could be maybe more of an editorial pose where it's trying to show um, poise or confidence or power in the situation where, you know, there might be, you know, someone who's maybe staring up and looking off, you know, there's, there's a different type of, you know, kind of ideas compared to maybe someone who is uh, kind of hugging onto someone, maybe leaning over with the spine and maybe eyes closed and giving more of a softer look. What's the type of story you're trying to tell with the individuals and also, if you're, if I'm doing work for someone, you know, if it's my, if it's my work, then I'm trying to think, okay, what type of story am I trying to tell? How am I trying to, you know, manipulate and create things to, to convey a certain thing, which can be really tricky when you're working with kids, because there's, there's sometimes where kids who will just like put on a show for you because they love the idea <laughs> of someone pointing a camera and spending all that attention towards them. They're like, this is the best day ever. And then there's some kids that are like, who are you? Why are you looking at me? <laughs> Why are we here? And, and you know, that's, that's more of that, like, you know, they're maybe not as comfortable. So how can you get them to feel comfortable? You're kind of like the fly on the wall and, you know, you get them to do something fun. And, you know, usually, you know, with kids, you have to do a lot of play activities, like say, like, hey, you know, we're in a, an outdoor spot where there's wildflowers. Like, hey, go, go. Show, I want you to go find your three flavored flowers and pick them and show them to me. 
And so you might get them uh, running off to go pick the flowers. You might get them interacting with each one and kind of looking at it and smelling them. And so all of these are different photos and images of them interacting with mm. somebody else. That can be very candid. And then when they go to show you, that's more portrait-like. And yeah. you, know, you might get them, you know, you might say, okay, go tell your, go tell your sister, you know, which one's your favorite. And so you get the two interacting there. Like that, where, you know, instead of interacting with the camera, they're interacting with each other, they're interacting with an object. And that automatically, again, if you think about three points of, of focus, it turns those three points into a candid moment. Uh, being able to think about how are you framing things? Like, do you have natural frames and how, like, maybe some trees are kind of, you know, they're maybe in between some trees or you're shooting through the foreground, like through some leaves or through something where, again, it looks like you're peering into something. Or is there a lot of, like, negative space where there's, not anything big going on or maybe a lot of sky and it's kind of really focused on just that person you've got lots of possibilities it just depends on uh you know, kind of what's your vision and can you can you envision something because i think one of the, the trickiest things with photography is you're going from you know having a vision of something you have to pre-envision a, a moment and then you have to put all of these tools and things together to turn that moment into a reality. When it comes to like children, you tell them to do this and then they'll warm up to you. So when it comes to sports, do you have to take photo of every moment you think something would happen or same goes with wildlife or do you just kind of wait up until something might happen? They're similar and different. They're similar in how both are like fast shutter speed action where you're trying to freeze, you're trying, you're, you're trying not to have any motion blur. The sports and wildlife move so fast. So you're yeah. usually using high shutter speeds and uh, you know, usually longer lenses unless you're doing something really up close. Both can still tell a story. You know, you're still going to convey you know, the emotion of the moment. But I like to say as where sports is, there's, there's action and you're trying to parse apart what's the decisive action to really get. Wildlife is a bunch of hurry up and waiting because yeah. you know, wildlife doesn't wait for you, nor does it show up at the same time you're willing to be there. So a lot of it is uh, kind of going out to places you know that particular animal or wildlife likes to be, and you've got to find a place where you can be non-invasive. It'll naturally kind of give you those moments where you know they'll allow themselves to be photographed, but you, know, you also have to be on it to an extent because you know again they're not going to wait for you; they're just gonna, they're going to do their thing and. If you spook them, they run away. Uh, sometimes what I'll, what I'll do, especially for like deer, is I'll go to the same spot, uh, like the same time, like daily, and like kind of let them get comfortable with me so they know I'm not a threat. And then, you know, after a while, they'll kind of just let you in their space because they're like, oh, this, this is obviously not a predator and they're not going to do anything. So you might even spend some pre-time kind of getting to know them and then getting to know you. And then, you know, they might be more tolerant of being observed because all of a sudden you're not, you know, oh, there's something moving, it's got to be a predator. It's like, oh, it's that one funny-looking guy who, uh, you know, doesn't do anything and whatnot. Because, you know, even for some, some animals are so skittish where just the, the sound of a shutter can, can cause them to run away. When I'm doing tests, you know, I, I remember one of, my, one of my favorite photos I've taken uh, was uh, one on the Guardian website was uh, a picture of one of our black belt instructors presenting his son, his black belt, and there's a, a moment where they're hugging. And, you know, just the, the smile on the dad's face because he's proud of his son, you know, making it to that, that, that milestone. You know, I'm like, okay, I need to be here on this kind of this line to kind of see him and catch this moment. And, you know, you know not just catching the handshake, but they kind of brought it and hugged and envisioning, like, okay, here's the possibility of what can happen. And I just need to at least make sure my framing and my composition is in a spot where I'm not going to miss that moment. That's a very 
touching moment when I was in class and I see people get their stripe or get their belt and their yeah. face light up. Oh my God. Jiu-Jitsu promotions, I know, like those are usually very emotional moments. Yeah. It, it takes so long to get the motive. For you know, other arts, you know, that have the belt systems, they're wearing, you know, people make it to black belt. I mean, that's a big milestone. Well, I tell students at, at school, I don't want you to just have a black belt. I want you to be one. I want it to be where if no one knew anything about you and what you did and there, there's a certain le- uh, character level of skill that you're you're presenting and you're demonstrating not about rank rank I mean, the rank of the belt that just holds your uniform together the the internal qualities that you develop having the mindset of being such is me the most important thing as long as they develop yeah. their skills they also develop their characters yeah because i, I think to develop skills you know, especially if you haven't done jiu-jitsu I mean, even, even for somebody who's natural at it they don't come quickly I and mean, it takes time to learn how to orient and decide and act in ways to perform an environment especially if it's an environment where some the, the partner or the person not cooperating and resisting and still being able to perform you know technique it takes a certain level of drive and motivation and initiative to to continue uh to, to hone the skills and you know it's not just the ability to do that to get to a point of success, but it's almost also being able to to allow yourself to stay learning and to watch yourself grow. And even, you know, no matter what level you're at, kind of throwing the ego out and being willing to make mistakes and sometimes even being caught, you know, some days, you know, you get caught where it's like, oh, the person who was a lower rank got me that day on something, but, you know, they had an awesome day and maybe I had a missed moment, but I had a lesson learned there. That's where they got a lesson of like, oh, like if I can pull this off at this level, then, you know, I can, I can, catch somebody who may be, you know, technically better. You know that you are still going to learn. You know, when you're first starting, everything's exciting. Everything feels new. Everything feels fresh. You're so new that you're willing to try and fail at something in order to learn it. Yeah. And compared to, you know, sometimes people get, get to black belt and they feel like, okay, now I have to be perfect all the time. You know, the ego starts to set in. It, it, it's to a point where you're not willing to Put yourself out there and allow yourself to make a mistake or allow yourself to fail at trying something new and kind of start to get only in your comfort zone. There's a difference in having a growth mindset, humility about it versus having the, oh, well, I've achieved this, so now I'm going to rest on my laurels because, you know, someone will catch you easy if you, if you don't. Uh, martial arts named Dave Kovar, he's very famous in the martial arts um, community, especially for developing instructors. Two things that he said is the, the enemy of being great is good enough. So if you say, oh, I'm, I'm just good enough, I don't need to learn anymore. But also on the art side, and you know, this is something I, I noticed with editing and doing photograph stuff is done is done is better than perfect. Yeah, done is better than perfect. Sometimes you might be sitting and trying to get something and it's like, you know what, just giving yourself a rung to say like, I, I've made a step forward and let me kind of enjoy the process, you know, because it's not a, it's not an end point or an A and B, it's a process. So like, you know, can I, can I continue to say that I'm, I'm on that process and on that journey? Pleasure of studying under uh, Dr. Jason Linkle. He's the CEO of the South Y, but he's a, also very decorated martial artist and very talented instructor. And he taught the uh, cadets at West Point. You know, there's a quote on the wall of the gymnasium at West Point Academy where it says, set the standard, maintain the standard, and excellence is a moving target. So you, know, you want to set a good standard. And for students, we have a high level of, you know, standards that we set. And then we want to make sure we're maintaining that standard. So we don't let our standards get lax. And then the thought that excellence is a moving target is we're continually trying to elevate our standards. So that helps you with, you know, editing photography too, I'm assuming. Because, I mean, I know how to do it, but I don't know, like, professional photographer. When do you know? When is it done? Like, when is it finally finished? Exactly. Um, You know, sometimes if I have one that I'm, like, way too, like, I'm, like, super buzzing about, I might have really liked that shot in that moment, or this one looks cool right now, but then later I might be calling my photos, and I'm like, you know, 
I was really jazzed about that, but I, I maybe didn't quite hit my uh, depth of field the way I wanted to. And though it might not be that particular moment, this other one is technically a bit better. And then within there, there's there's different technical things that can be better or worse or kind of help help that process along. And so while I do a, a same day turnaround, but usually I'll, I'll wait at least a day or two, you know, kind of cool off from it, you know, enjoy the moment that the shoot went well, and then start working on it because then we kind of more objectively look at it and it'll be easier to tell when something's done. Yeah, those are, those are tough decisions, but it's one where, again, like I say, you kind of let yourself, sort of like you're letting the adrenaline wear off in the moment, it lets you better, you know, kind of evaluate. After you've done the editing, let's say like, okay, this is it for you, do you immediately think that, okay, I want to publish it or post it, or do you take like a day to just kind of see how you feel? So in my workflow, what I'll do is I'll, I'll back up immediately. So I'll back up all my raw files. Mm-hmm. And then usually the next day, I'll start going through and calling the photos down to the, the delivery amount that I say I'm going to deliver to the person. So, you know, mm-hmm. usually I try to shoot for more um, just to give variety, but I also want to make sure everything's quality. Then I'll go do a final look through and just make sure everything's to standard. And then I'll, I'll publish from there. Do you have music when you teach a class or do you keep it silent? Uh, in Taekwondo, we keep it silent because, you know, that's probably the most traditional art of what we, we do. And I think it's just one where for the kids too, I think it helps them focus to not have music in the background. For the Filipino arts, because the Filipino arts are weapons-based and, you know, you're doing more, there's a lot more movement and, and whatnot. There's a different flow to it. And, you know, the Filipino arts are all about flow and, and, you know, being able to really kind of fluidly move. I put on like instrumental, like, you know, rock or techno or, or, you know, lo-fi hip-hop stuff or anything like that. And just kind of, you know, get something that will have people moving and flowing. Does that work for uh, photography too? Do you listen to music before you take photography or during? So I do in my car on the way there. Well, I might listen to certain songs or listen to things where it kind of gets, sort of puts my mind into the, the mindset I want to be for, for getting getting going. I feel like I should use music more in my shooting because I, I know for individuals, I, I might offer to put music on. Um, I, I haven't done that as much because, you know, I, I just like interacting and talking with people. Probably for more of my individual ones where it's you know, kind of more of a model photo shoot, that probably would be helpful for them kind of getting into the flow of things. Because yeah. you, you, get, you get started, things don't flow from like the get-go, but like after you get you know, a few shots and poses deep, then you kind of get a flow to the session going and that, that really, you know, you start to see things really evolve from there. Right. Do you have like a movie that you like based on martial arts? Because you're also a photographer. So maybe you have something with like really great cinematography. Do you have any movies in mind that could represent that? Two of my favorite directors are uh, Alfred Hitchcock and Akira Kurosawa. Woohoo! They're great. Because their, their cinematography and their vision was just on another plane of existence, you know, back then. Because you know, especially for me, Kurosawa, just the way that he framed just about everything in his movies, I mean, just it, it, it greatly impacted film. And, you know, the two movies I think of with him is, um, you know, Rashomon, Akiru, and uh, Ron. Ron in both the shooting and also the way in which music was used. You know, that's probably, to me, one of the hardest movies of his to watch because of the sheer length of it. But it's also so to me just technically and like subjectively good too that like I'm like I can get through it but like I've got to I've got to sit down and be ready to watch this is where the way in which you know Kurosawa just the way that he composed his shots and just established things he used lighting and the way he just had music was just there it was never just like beat you over the face with something that was you know yeah. suspenseful it was very just like it was just enough the way in which Kurosawa put things together was just just 
phenomenal. And then for Hitchcock, I mean, Hitchcock just was inventive. I mean, he was very creative in how he did his, you know, special effects and how he did his things that are normal and totally revamp them. Like I think of like Rear Window was shot to look like it was in one take. The Psycho, just the way in which there's just so many ways they establish things. It's not so much just about what they show and what he, what he doesn't show that makes it so gripping. To just look at every small details they have. Yeah, because Rear Window is one that way. And then I know on Rope, the way they designed that set, they, to, to make it still look like one take, they, they had a uh, kind of a, a cityscape in the background that they had the light change because you couldn't cut away. They changed the light temperature and they changed the lights as the shots were going just very ever so steadily. So it went from that daytime look to nighttime. So there's so many small things that they, they did in that movie. At some point, I'm going to see where this wasn't done in one take. Like at some point, I'm going to see where there was a cut. But I mean, it was just so well edited where it looked like it was all done in, in one cut. Do you have like a maybe photographer that you look up to that you kind of got inspired from? Even though I do a lot of individual family, you know, and sports work, I mean, I really, the, the ones that blow my mind are the people who are just, you know, can really almost make painterly-like things that do like more editorial kind of. Mm-hmm. shoots and you know fashion shoots so i mean you're like any Leibovitz kind of you know photographers you know th- those really you know get me because they their way they're able to use either environment or the way in which they're able to just layer their lighting uh to, to get the effect that they do that that's me that's really inspiring and you know it's one where there's just you know the you know fine art and fashion photography also do that that's part of doing like individuals and families and i really enjoy that kind of can, can be creative because you're you're taking something normal and natural but then the ones where you're literally trying to make art out of the photograph to put something together and you know, all your effects or your know, atmosphere A's or whatever you're using. You know, to me, that is the technically fascinating part, you know, in some ends. Okay, um, so we're going to wrap it up. And do you have any website or like social media that you want to promote? If you're interested for the martial arts end, uh, you can uh, follow us. Up. We're on Facebook at uh, Guardian Martial Arts Studio or our website, uh, guardianmartialarts.org, um, where you can look up our, our schedule of classes. You know, like you said, we offer you know, Taekwondo, Hapkido, you know, NSI, like, you know, Modern Arnis. Love to have people down. In time of COVID, it's kind of hard to say, oh yeah, everybody come on in. Just, you know, everybody's <laughs> yeah. like, no, stay away, six feet. But right now I just feel, you know, blessed that we have our doors open and we'll still provide what we do. And whenever people get there, you know, we'll still be here. We'll still, you know, we're not planning on going anywhere. On the photography end, uh, I'll get Facebook page, Creative Flow uh, Photography uh, LLC is my Facebook page. And then uh, I also have a link to my website on the Facebook page there too, where it's also Creative Flow Photos. Creative Flow Photos at gmail.com. That's my uh, business email for that one. And uh, if you want to reach out for uh, Guardian, uh, it's uh, studio at gmail.com. So yeah, just feel free to Facebook message or call or you know, visit the website and make an inquiry. You know, lots of ways of contacting. I contacted him through Facebook. He's a very nice guy, everyone. So you can just message him <laughs> and he's going to reply immediately. Yep, I'm pretty responsive to messenger. Okay, thank you so much, James, for having me interview you. I hope you have a good day. Yep, thank you. You too. For upcoming events, opportunities, and more info, give us a call at 812-370-0278 or visit our website at artisanalley.com.